Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Senate immigration bill has been released, and it is now the moment of truth. Welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the issues and priorities facing Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck, your other host. It's a Tuesday. The House is in session, so we are back with you for another episode of Control. There is a lot going on. This is going to be a jammed pack episode, a busy week, um, but at the top, I do think it's just worth reminding everyone that time is moving forward. Um, there are a lot of hurdles to getting the government funded this year. I just have to make the plug at the top. I mean, March 1st is going to be here before we know. It's kind it. of our shtick. We can't let people lose track that that is going to be the big thing. Um, but yeah, that, that remains a big thing. But um, actually a really important week. I'm, I'm very fascinated to see uh, how this goes. We have obviously a deal finally released uh, in the Senate on immigration. The House is talking about moving an Israel bill. Of course, we are potentially going to be impeaching Mayorkas, and the House put up a pretty big number on tax reform. So lots of dysfunction, but also some some function. So a lot to get into this week. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, Sunday news dumps this year. That's kind of been the, the theme of 2024. Um, we're also really excited to bring on our guest this week, Dan Constan. Um, I know we mentioned we're going to be doing a little bit more uh, of election news this season. Um, and Dan currently serves as the president of the Congressional Leadership Fund, or CLF, um, which is, of course, a super PAC dedicated to electing Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives. So we're going to talk with him about the sort of lay of the land, upcoming election. We're going to touch on uh, the New York House special election and the recent financial disclosure deadlines and kind of what they mean for 2024. Yeah, excited about that. Um, but obviously, the, the headline of the week is the Senate has finally introduced its immigration bill. Uh, feels a bit like it. <laughs> they waited so long that it's already dead by the time that it arrives. Uh, but I think what happens from here is going to be very important and, and fascinating to watch. Um, you know, it feels like you could almost do the postmortem on this bill, um, whether it's how long it took them to get this done. I mean, look, they, they got it done. So, like, let's give them credit for actually getting an agreement. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a difficult... I mean, we've said it before. It's, like, you know, kind of the impossible uh, policy to address. I feel like we've Congress. kind of, like, yada yada this topic for a while because it just, like, felt like mm. this was probably never going to happen. And it, as a matter of uh, law, probably still won't happen. But, yeah, it, it drug out forever. Um, kind of lost the narrative. Um, I mean, that was sort of something that um, we always joke about in, in various offices, you know, don't lose the narrative. Where's the narrative? Uh, but it did seem to play out over the last couple of weeks, like I mean, all the rumors on, on the Internet. The, the narrative was like Groundhog's Day, like as we just had. It was like every week was this is the week we're going to see the bipartisan immigration bill. Um, and it never happened. And what that ended up doing um, obviously was allowing people to, to fill the space. And um, I, James Langford has been out there pretty vocal about how uh, a lot of misinformation about what's in there and people paying more attention to Facebook posts. And I'm super sympathetic to that. It's really hard to do difficult things in the, you know, the media environment these days and where people get their news. But they didn't do themselves any favors either uh, by kind of announcing a deal and then waiting days and days before they actually released anything. Um, you know, this, I feel like this kind of thing happens when you have a um, sort of rank and file member driven negotiation. Um, and I know that McConnell and Schumer's folks were involved. Uh, but they just let things get out of hand in terms of talking about how far along they were and how this was done. And if you're not done, don't give people the impression that you're done um, yeah. because they're going to start like looking for things. And when they don't see things, they're going to make up things. And by the time you roll out your bill, 
um, it has very little to do with what is on the piece of paper. You're kind of already dead. Yeah, it was kind of a drip drip of rumors. Um, and of course, there's a lot of different piece, a lot of different places for opposition. I mean, I think Langford was in a really impossible position of not having finalized bill text to push back against any of these rumors. And of course, you know, to your point, like he was negotiating week after week. Um, but but there's also, I mean, there's also a lot of different um, different places that the opposition is coming from. I mean, you're not really able to just say, okay, there's concerns on the right, there's concerns on the left. I mean, they're kind of, this is why it's, you know, this is why it's such a complicated issue. I mean, you're you're sort of dealing with this many different front assault on, uh, on something like this. And not to mention, you know, you're trying to tie it to Ukraine funding and Israel yeah. support. Yeah. And, and so now, Obviously, the question is whether they can pass it, right? Um, and they're talking about having a vote or a test vote. I don't know how the Senate works. Some kind of vote that would indicate support for it um, at some point Wednesday. on Wednesday. Um, test vote. Yeah, sorry, I'm a Closer. house guy. I'm a house guy. Um, but I guess you're already hearing this morning that there's a lot of angsty people uh, in the Senate. Some some meeting you you heard about. Um, yeah, it sounds like the uh, Senate comms meeting, which is a regular meeting on uh, Monday mornings of uh, the Republican uh, Republican conference, got a little testy, um, which it's it's usually a pretty, I mean, there are flare ups on occasion, but that's that's not a super common place for people to argue with each other in public. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of Republican senators in particular who are saying, why are we voting on this at all? Like obviously yeah. Schumer decides um, whether something comes up, but you're looking at what the, the House is saying, Johnson and Scalise making very clear they're not going to vote on it. And we've talked previously about how much harder it is to whip a bill when it, you know, it's got no chance of, of passage in the other body. Um, and so I imagine there's a lot of Republican senators getting nothing but negative feedback from back home. I mean, that's just how this stuff works. You, the, peop the people are animated, they're fired up. The incoming into those offices, the calls, the letters, the tweets, whatever it may be, is probably, I don't know, but I measure it's overwhelmingly negative. And when you don't have the potential to actually make law, I'm sure a lot of Republican senators are saying like, what, what are What's we doing this for? This? Why are we doing this? Why are you putting us in this really tough situation? Um, I mean, you would flag that Steve Daines, the chair of the NRSC, the Senate committee has come out and said, he's not going to vote for it. I mean, that kind of tells you all you need to know about the politics. Yeah. I mean, and I, just to go back to the House side quickly, because, you know, we've talked a lot about how um, Scalise and Stefanik have been, you know, kind of letting Johnson do his thing and sort of just fading into the background. Um, and, you know, they kind of jumped out pretty quickly, too, um, to say that this is not something that they're going to support. And, um, I don't really I didn't really see that as them sort of wanting to go link arms with Johnson and be like, yeah, we're, you know, we're part of your team. We're here with you. Like, I, I think that was much more of like a calculated uh, political maneuvering. I mean, this has risen to the point where and Lankford's already experienced this, but this has become such a well-known issue of, you know, this the build being formed and negotiated has become so on the radar of people back home. This is the type of thing that if you vote for it, you get like censured by your, yeah. your party back home. And so everybody is, is trying to make sure they're in a good place. It's also the house trying not to get jammed by the Senate. Like they would very well, like very much that the Senate never even sends this to them. So they don't even have to answer the question. Um, the thing I am most interested at this point though, is to your point about leadership, um, Senate leaders, uh, other than McConnell. McConnell's leaning into this, but we know that there's a very high uh, likelihood that McConnell hangs it up after this year, and you have the first Republican leader race uh, in the Senate in a very long time. Uh, and we we talk uh, colloquially about the, the three Johns, uh, Thune, Barrasso, and Cornyn. Um, all rumored to be interested in the next, uh, being the next Republican leader in the Senate. How do they vote? I mean, these are the team players. These are the McConnell allies. Um, but this feels like one of those votes where if they were to vote for the Senate immigration deal, that could be a disqualifier for a lot of people in the conference when they are running for leader next time. So keeping a very close eye on how Thune uh, and Cornyn and, and Barrasso vote. Yeah, I think some of the other Senate Republicans 
uh, commentary around this bill. I mean, it's clear that they see, you know, the Hollies and the Lees, uh, who I'm speaking about specifically, it's clear that they see this as kind of a moment uh, of like an inflection point on McConnell um, and maybe trying to position themselves as like the alternatives if what kind of you're talking about, uh, Brendan, with um, sort of the rank and files you know, natural successor doesn't doesn't pan out for whatever reason. There's there's clearly movements afoot. And let's be clear about why McConnell is for this. I mean, I think he probably thinks Linkford did a good job, and on on the merits, it's you know uh, the right time to try to do something on immigration because you know if you wait around for the stars to align for Republicans, you know, thinking that's going to ever happen, it's just you know a fool's errand. But this is not for McConnell about the border. This is about Ukraine. And I think people need to look at the politics of all of this, like immigration politics are its own thing. But in terms of the wrangling that's been going on between leadership for at least for McConnell, and and I would argue on this on the House side, it's about Ukraine. McConnell saw this as a necessary ingredient for for getting something that was that was his priority. I think the House Republicans throwing up roadblocks and trying to shoot this down is also about Ukraine. I think. Johnson knows that Ukraine funding is super unpopular in his conference, and he doesn't want to have to feel any real pressure about bringing up anything for Ukraine and and is trying to navigate around that, which I think the Israel bill that he is now um, says he's going to bring up uh, by way of background, the House months ago, I think at this point, passed um, supplemental funding for Israel. Uh, offset it with some uh, cuts to the IRS. It was uh, sort of panned as a partisan exercise. I think back then, um, at least I was somewhat critical of it because it felt like if he had gotten out front and just passed Ukraine, or excuse me, Israel aid that was clean, that could have gotten a huge vote, would have put a lot of pressure on the Senate, would have detached Israel from Ukraine in a helpful way. Yeah, it felt a little gimmicky at the time. Yeah, and they ignored it, of course. So, uh, but now he's announced that they are going to do an Israel-only bill, no offsets, no gimmicky stuff. Um, And I think that, again, is not about Israel. That's about Ukraine. That's about him trying to find some way to not have to bring up Ukraine funding because that has become the third rail in his conference. The type of thing that it's going to get people trying to remove him from office if they bring up funding. Even as he gives lip service to it, I I think we have to look at the Israel bill through that prism. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree the importance of the Ukraine funding should not be lost in this conversation. But I do think that the uh, conversation around this immigration bill, rightly or wrongly, I mean, whether or not the policies um, are how they're being described by members of the you know, right conservative media, I do think there is a lot of animosity and a lot of tension in the conservative flank around, um, you know, doing anything with respect to immigration and this For sure. bipartisan. Yeah, package. I mean, there's a reason we've never, we've not been able to do anything in immigration in 30 something years or whatever it is. Um, it's the hardest issue. I've been through it. We've tried to bring up immigration bills before and the same thing happens. Everybody loses their mind. It doesn't matter what the bill says, what the details are. Um, the misinformation is is rampant. Throw in Donald Trump and like make it even yeah, harder. Right. So like, I don't want to, I'm not saying it's not about immigration. Like there's very strong immigration um, politics at play, but it's also for McConnell and the way he's been acting and the, what Johnson's been doing. Like he's very aware that he needs to get Ukraine removed from this issue. And and we've talked about this before. If, if immigration fails um, and that is no longer a viable thing to attach to a national security supplemental, do they pivot to a Ukraine-Israel bill together? And that's what Johnson's trying to get ahead of is right. fund, fund Israel. Let's leave Ukraine for another day or, or stand alone and see how that happens, um, how that works. Um, but I think the reason he's doing Israel right now is not because all of a sudden he feels like Israel is in need of the funding or more urgently. He's trying to dislodge it from the Ukraine conversation. And I think this is the first time we've seen him make a move that's a couple steps ahead and sort of a little bit on the offensive to give him some credit here. It's yeah, I mean, he should have done it months ago. (laughs) But it is at this point, at least a relatively shrewd move. The problem for him now and the ultimate question is, can he pass it? Um, I think that's a a very open question. Uh, Freedom Caucus already coming out saying, 
that they have concerns about it not being offset this time. So he's, he's set himself up with this precedent that they're going to offset it. And now going back makes it hard. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. The he seems Johnson seems to be, you know, not totally disregarding the Freedom Caucus, um, but not necessarily asking for their blessings before doing some of these things. Um, that seems to be a bit of a departure. Maybe he's learned that yeah, they're probably not going to be there. They're for not going to be with me. <laughs> so, so what's the point? Let's yeah. Um, I'm also curious to see how Democrats would vote on something like this. I, I think you know I'm not an expert in Democratic politics, but. Uh, certainly has to feel like the politics are different on their side of things today than it was a few months ago. Um, yeah, Jeffrey said it was a cynical attempt to undermine the Senate's bipartisan effort. So he's, I mean, now that was over, you know, the weekend, and he says they're going to have a discussion this week uh, on the on the Sunday evening news. Uh, so I'm sure they'll talk about it, but... Uh, you know, the, the the there are always going to be a number of... Democrats in the House who are going to vote for anything that has Israel funding, and there were there were a number of them that voted on the IRS cuts too. So like they're going to get a bunch of Democrats for sure. But you know the the fervor with which there's the sort of ceasefire push, and I think I think just the idea of sending arms without any limitations on it to Israel right now probably doesn't play as well in. Uh, Democrat politics as it potentially did um, before. And so, you know, we're, we kind of come full circle now. Um, maybe you'll get some Democrat votes to offset the Republican losses. Um, but is it going to be enough? Because just to go back to kind of disregarding the Freedom Caucus a little bit here, um, I mean, are we going to be doing this on the new way that the house operates the suspension calendar yeah I, I don't know if they will be able to bring a rule bill to the floor right i mean if if chip roy is and and thomas massey are saying you know we're not forget the guys on the rules committee if anybody if if, if two or three house republicans which you know we, we've seen almost anybody now is willing to use um the rules process to hold things up are willing to block the rule consideration on the floor uh, and they have to pivot to suspension. You now need more than 218. You need 290 votes. And I'm curious to see. I would be surprised, frankly, if there are 290 votes for this Israel package uh, right now. Um, maybe, maybe that, maybe the supporting Israel is still that popular that they could pull it off. Um, but we may have like be testing our limits of this new way of doing business in the House. Can you consistently bring bills up? under suspension um, and operate at that really high ceiling. I mean, the Freedom Caucus, in some ways, um, you know, the dog that caught the car, they, you know, they sort of control the rules committee now. Um, and they've instead forced the leadership forced to work with, with, with Democrats. Yeah. Um, but maybe now it, it shows that like Johnson can't always rely on that. Johnson can't rely on, um, uh, on Democrats to pass everything that he wants to do. And so it ends up really limiting the House's ability to uh, pivot. Like, he's, you know, he's trying to be agile. He's trying to like, we're going to do a quick move to try to get ahead of them. And like, if you can't count on having 218 votes as the threshold to pass something, it really limits your ability um, to be agile and, and to respond quickly to uh, developments. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that's going to be, uh, we're going to be watching this week to see if they're able to get pass is the uh, measure to impeach Mayorkas over in the House as well. Yeah. Um, this is, I, I guess, more than anything, I guess, testing the uh, how much this unifies the, you know, Johnson's moving Mayorkas impeachment because it's good politics for him. Um, I, I, you know, I think I've talked previously about, I don't think this is what impeachment is for. This is clearly like a more of a policy disagreement than a high crime and misdemeanor, but it keeps his folks together. Um, they're, you know, they've been promising that they were going to do this for a while. Marjorie Taylor Greene has basically made it a condition for somebody being speaker. So he's doing it. Um, you've got, but I've said this, I mean, I, I think there's like four people in the district of Columbia that care about impeaching Mayorkas and like Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of them in yeah. terms of functionally carrying out a trial and actually going through the, the motions that, that you'd have to here. So it would be certainly very embarrassing if they brought this up and it failed. Um, Ken Buck, no relation, uh, and um, Tom McClintock, who's the who's the other person who is 
strike that. Ken Buck and somebody else have said that they're unwilling uh, or unsure about voting on this. You can fact check me on that. Um, and you know, you, if you have a two vote margin, that could be enough to, to derail it. So are they able to pass it? That's an open question. Um, I'm sure the Senate would be more than happy, even Senate Republicans would be more than happy to have them fail. Um, and all this does is create another sort of headache and um, p point of tension for McConnell and all those folks over there. Like, do they really want to do this? Do they want to waste time on this? Um, I'm sure they would just rather not have to, to worry about this. Um, but it's just, point being, I think this is much more about Johnson and his own personal politics than it is about anything else. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to be jammed up and have this eat up the floor time right before an election. That's ultimately what I mean. So when I was in the Speaker's office in 2016, there was an effort to impeach the IRS commissioner, John Koskinen. People may remember this. Jim Jordan, Freedom Caucus. Um, this was all related to the IRS targeting scandal. This wasn't even the guy who was there uh, leading the IRS then, but they were. Um, they they didn't think he was being responsive enough and uh, to their oversight, and so they they moved. They wanted to move to impeach him, and we had to deal with this for like months, trying to convince them like this was not a good idea. Um, but at the same time, we were getting a lot of pressure from the Senate. McConnell was the leader at the time, um, majority leader, saying like, "Don't do this. Like, if you send over a impeachment resolution, I'm going to have to have a trial." Um, and that's going to like eat up two weeks of floor time. I guess the difference this time is with Democrats in control, you know, M McConnell felt the pressure that he couldn't just dispose of something if conservatives Yeah, it was more politically, yeah. the political pressure rather than yeah. mechanism. But I guess the Senate this time, you know, Democrats in charge, uh, so long as they all stick together, can probably just bury this somewhere. And so, um, you know, ultimately ends up being not that important other than for the first time in 140 years, we've we've impeached a, a cabinet secretary. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was in the Senate when we impeached President Trump uh, for the first time. And, you know, whether or not you agreed or disagreed with the with what was going on there, I mean, everything was pretty much ground to a halt. I mean, yeah. You can't, I mean, you can't I, I, I guess you guys figured out how to do some business like in the mornings, but like by noon you had to be sitting in your chair doing nothing. Yeah, they um, couldn't have their phones. So, I mean, it, again, it like kind of sounds trivial, but if you can't talk to any of your staff for like 12 hours and yeah. you can't, you know, if you're in cycle and you have, I mean, you, yeah, you figure things out, but it, you know, we also had the backdrop of coronavirus. Like there was just a lot going on. Um, and as you've noted, we've got a funding deadline coming up soon. So if they jam up the, the Senate on this, so it sounds like the Senate is probably going to find some way to dispose of this, not have to have a trial, whether it's bury it in committee or just, you know, um, move to dismiss the charges. Um, you know, I think it's just a simple majority vote on some of these things so they could they could take care of that. So we'll obviously keep an eye on it as well. First step, of course, can Johnson keep everybody together um, and and do that? Um, before we get to Dan, it is worth following up. I think that the house pulled off uh, a pretty impressive vote on some tax reform. Yeah. They only had like 70 defectors or something like that. Yeah. This is the package of some expired business tax breaks from the 2017 tax cuts and jobs act paired with an expanded child tax credit. Um, and a little bit of everybody wins. You know, I think we, we had talked about um, how big does that vote get? They have to put it on suspension. I think the only drama really last week was your, your um, SALT, your New York members trying to get some SALT reform. Which it sounds like there. they made some progress there. I, I guess they, we'll they're see. getting a vote. SALT being state and local tax um, that's been hitting the uh, higher tax states a lot and higher income states a lot. Um, I mean, the, the notable thing there this is not the Freedom Caucus. This was, you had moderate New York Republicans holding up the floor, threatening to take down a rule. They eventually relented and are getting a vote, I guess, on their, their policy. Um, but I think just a real, again, fundamental breakdown that rules are now just a thing that you take hostage. Um, it, it just fundamentally changes the operations of the House and um, you know, we didn't have a rule fail for like 20 years and now it's just commonplace. So something to keep an eye on and, and certainly, you know, maybe it's specific to this Congress, maybe it's specific to the fact that it's such a, I think that's optimistic. 
well, small majority, but like, yeah, I don't know. When Democrats come back, is, is um, Jeffries able to regain control? Um, if Republicans have a little bigger majority, does this become less of a problem? I don't know. We'll see. Um, but, you know, now, of course, the, you know, what's next? The question, I think, is just does the Senate feel compelled to take this up? There is a bit of like a tax filing date pressure to try to do something relatively soon. Um, <clears throat> but my the thing I'm watching on this is um, does the Senate really feel like it wants to take a House passed bill and just give the house a big win and just put it up for a vote um, yeah we kind of talked about that but it feels like when you know the the house is being so outspoken about you know the immigration deal not even being we're not even going to consider that and then they're kind of turning around and um sort of asking the senate to take up this this sort of negotiated tax package you know there's some house or excuse me some senate republicans that kind of are calling to open it up to have some uh, an amendment process yeah kind of doesn't feel like the Senate is probably in a good mood to take just whatever the House does after they just really screwed them on immigration. Now, most people are, you know, against the immigration bill, but, um, you know, if you're Chuck Schumer controlling the floor, do you want to hand Mike Johnson a huge win? Now, it would be a win for Joe Biden as well. So I I think there's a good chance that something along these lines um, gets done, but you may fall into these sort of petty grievances between the two chambers and and egos and and that kind of thing and making them sort of sit it out and wait a little bit um, before they do anything. Yeah, no, I mean, that's not to say that this package was negotiated entirely separate from the Senate, right? I mean, you had uh, Senator Wyden negotiating with mm, the chairman yes. over on the House side. Yes, Ron Wyden. Um, not in the top five most popular senators. But yes, it is, to be fair, it is also a, a Senate negotiated deal. And, you know, you can look at Ron Wyden two ways. One, he's going to pester the heck out of Chuck Schumer to put it on the floor because, you know, he wants the policy and he's can be a pesterer. Um, also, Ron Wyden is one of the least popular senators, so it's one of those things where you know he doesn't necessarily drive a whole lot of people. So um, we'll see. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, but I think a pretty interesting week ahead of us. Um, certainly a lot going on, and we're not even really talking about the the funding deadline, which I know will come. Uh, we'll be back with that front and center before before too long. Um, but yeah, fascinating. A lot of fascinating dynamics, uh, both in the House and the Senate, this week to keep an eye on. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with Dan Constant. Control is a seven-letter word, and this podcast is a production of Seven Letter. Seven Letter is a leading strategic communications and bipartisan public affairs agency. Our work is powered by senior practitioners who develop and execute innovative communication solutions to take on complex challenges. Learn more at sevenletter.com. Now, back to the program. All right, and now we are excited to welcome our guest for today. Dan Constant is the president of the Congressional Leadership Fund, uh, the super PAC affiliated with the House Republican leadership. Uh, he has been there running that organization for five years. Uh, I will say I've known Dan a long time, um, back from his days as a flack for Peter Roskam in the House. Love, love House guys. Uh, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So uh, I think we want to start off maybe at the highest level. Now, look, you've been through a number of cycles at this point. You, you've seen a lot. Um, but how is, in your mind, and you know, to the extent you can spare us the, the talking points, but the, the, your, your sense of the landscape going into uh, this uh, presidential election year for the House, um, you know, you have a very slim majority. Uh, what is your sort of take on on how things look shaping up going into the election year? Yeah, I feel good about where things are uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the the issue set has really been pretty good for Republicans overall. You see how much immigration has been an issue. You've seen how much crime has been an issue. And we can have a debate about the quality of the economy, but the the vibe of voters is that the economy is, is quite poor. And then you get to the House, the, the single biggest benefit that I believe we have heading into this cycle is that the 
the defensive members in the toughest seats, the people that we've recruited, elected over the last two cycles, they are the emerging stars of the party and they have run far ahead of their top of the ticket for multiple cycles. They have demonstrated they can win crossover votes. So when I look at the, the defensive races, I feel great about the members themselves. And you add in another layer that on the defensive races, they're overwhelmingly in safe blue states. They're in swing districts, but in safe blue states, we have done far better in the House over the last two cycles in these blue states. And there's a dynamic there of awful local governance, crime issues, lagging economic issues. A lot of people voted with their feet. They're gone. And the ones that are left are, are desperate, hopeless, helpless. And, and that has really helped us on the defensive side. And then this year on, on offense, uh, we've made a, a really significant effort on recruitment. NRCC deserves a lot of credit on that. I, I think this recruiting class is as good as we've ever had. So I feel, I feel reasonably good about our prospects. I recognize we have you know, real challenges ahead um, in, in a variety of places. You've got to win the right primaries, and it's tough to oust incumbents. Um, and and you know, we've got a, a bunch of members in, safe, in, in really deep blue districts, but I think they've demonstrated those are the type of people that, that just they win. Yeah, Dan, you mentioned some of the issues that are kind of coming front and center, immigration being one of them. I'm curious if um, it's surprising to you that in the New York special, which is obviously top of a lot of people's mind, um, a district that Biden won by you know nearly 10 points, is it surprising to you that immigration has really risen to the top of, um, of kind of the, the concerns there for voters? No, it's, it's part of the blue state phenomenon. So... You talk about the New York special. We shouldn't have a prayer in this special election between George Santos and a seat that Biden won by 10 and running against a former incumbent in Swazi. You know, uh, the the deck was sort of stacked against us from the outset. And yet we very much have a shot of picking this off. And it look, if you look at where we won, we, we won overwhelmingly in New York last cycle. Um, well, two straight cycles, but but last cycle in particular, crime was just a profound problem that uh, resonated in every one of these races. And I think the migrant crisis is that next extension of it. It's it's really a it, it's a public safety issue, and the 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 rub of why does it matter there is because in all these blue states with huge Democrat cities. They have massive challenges now from this, some in their communities and certainly on television and their media market. So I, I, it, it doesn't shock me. And I'll tell you in our survey is one data point to this. Eric Adams is the least popular figure in this district. He is less popular than Joe Biden. He is less popular than Kathy Hochul. Why is that? Front and center immigration migrant crisis. What about George Santos? What's wrong with George Santos? Well, he's a cult-like figure now. He's uh, <laughs> really uh, feeling his moment on Cameo. They didn't include him in the poll, Brendan. That's too bad. I would have loved to have seen that number. But um, So you feel like, I, I know you'll tell me you feel good about it, but is this a race that we should expect Republicans to win at this point? <sighs> I, don't, I don't know if it's expect because... Democrats up till this morning were in for $8 million on IEs and we're in for five. Uh, so, so they're throwing the book at it. Uh, but I increasingly feel like we can pick this off. And the, the best indicator I would say of that is what the other side is doing. Since we went up on TV with our immigration message within three days, Swazi had changed his traffic and he was focused on immigration responding to us. You've got House Majority PAC running positive ads for Swazi on immigration. And, you know, look, 
money matters a lot in this, and and we made the determination that we were going to be really heavy in the in when it matters. A special election's a low turnout, low interest election. So we said, okay, the final 25 days, we're going to be up in a significant way. And that's where we've been. And I think we've spent better and we've spent more efficiently than Democrats have. We've, we've really utilized 15 second ads and, and all that. But if you look at, you know, some, some of this is message and our messages are not equal. Um, our message, I, I, I see it in our polling, it's breaking through, but you can see it from what they're doing. And their message is not. And, and their message is MAGA extremist and it's abortion and this and that. But you look at today, um, the Democrat uh, group house majority pack up with ads and the final week of the election, they've abandoned MAGA, they've abandoned abortion. And now they're saying that Mazi Pillup, an Ethiopian Jewish Israeli paratrooper, is George Santos 2.0. So obviously George Santos uh, resigning was not the most disruptive thing that you've experienced this cycle. Um, talk to me a little bit about the transition to uh, Speaker Johnson. And for everyone's background, I mean, effectively, the Speaker of the House or the top Republican leader is, is sort of is the figurehead overseeing the Congressional Leadership Fund. And I know you worked very closely with Kevin McCarthy over a number of years. Um, what's it like now working with Speaker Johnson? Um, and, you know, what's what's his style maybe in contrast to, to Kevin? Yeah, so I should first say, legally speaking, uh, the, the relationship between elected officials like the Speaker and CLF is that they endorse the organization and they raise resources. For them. So the primary way in which we interact with any elected official is uh, through them as special guests helping us raise. We, of course, are the ones asking and, and all of that. Um, but but it's true. I, I would, you know, very close with Kevin, work closely with him and um, and, and have been working closely with the new speaker. So, uh, look, I mean, obviously it was a highly disruptive and, and problematic process at the time. You, you had, you know, Ke Kevin had built up years and years of donor relationships, donor goodwill, um, and, and, and that was a, a real shock to the system. You know, what I'll say, what, you know, from, from our view, new speaker gets elected, he immediately embraced CLF, the entire elected Republican leadership team has embraced CLF. And I think all of that has been really productive for the donor community and seeing stability. And they recognize that their investments, it's going to a place they understand are comfortable with and that it works the same. In terms of the speaker himself, he's done everything I could have asked for and more. I mean, he, he did nine trips just for CLF in the first two months. And okay, Kevin's enormously talented on so many levels and what he did for CLF, he took us to the next stratosphere. Uh, so he deserves endless credit. But one of the things that he was famous for was work ethic. And he, you know, he was famous for living on the road and, and always being out there raising. And, and I think we've seen from the new speaker that he's willing to commit the exact same kind of effort and and that has been really significant and then in terms of style you know I, I i think it's i think donors as they have met the speaker have been very happy with what they have seen they you know you can read whatever you want to read in the press you don't know there's obviously this initial point of caution and i don't know what what is he going to be like? And uh, I think they have all found him charming, smart, very deep on policy matters, willing to put in the time, and, and able to put forward a, a clear plan. Um, and politically, I, I think it, it has helped, at least for the CLF donors, that you've got a real continuation of the exact same apparatus from before. And, and all of that has been you know, beneficial. 
Yeah, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, Dan, but I think it's it's no secret that it's not uh, a super desirable place to be uh, in Washington right now with recruitment and candidates. Um, so I, I guess I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how, um, you know, when you are looking for that next class of candidate to come to the house, like, you know, what's, you know, kind of how do you explain to them and, and get some of these uh, Republicans excited about, you know, maybe coming to Congress? Yeah. So initially this cycle, there was not a rush of candidates to jump forward. And at first, I think that created a challenge, but I believe it has worked out better because it has allowed us to go out and be really thoughtful about getting the right person and getting them into the race. And you you look at, I mean, look, the best example I could give you I'll give you two examples. Um, in Alaska, last cycle, we had candidate issues. Uh, we, we ultimately couldn't invest in the race. Mary Poltola wins. This cycle, we went out and, and really the NRCC deserves a tremendous amount of credit on this. Uh, they got the Lieutenant Governor of Alaska into the race. Uh, her name's Nancy Dahlstrom. She's very accomplished. She's running in a state that we expect to win by 10 points on the presidential. And she's running with a very popular governor as her governor. So now the, the process for that, I think they needed to, to see that there was a path to victory. Sorry. Um, they needed to see that there was a path to victory. They needed to see that national Republicans were committed to the race. We had to work pretty closely with with the with Governor Dunleavy in that process, um, but but it very much worked out, and I think that'll be the difference in in a, a race like this. In another race in New York, um, we very much encouraged Allison Esposito to run, and I know she was heavily weighing other options. She could have run, you know, elsewhere, and 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 Allison is a 25-year NYPD vet. She was Lee Zeldin's lieutenant governor nominee. She's running in a Westchester area seat. Pat Ryan won it. He won it by a point. It was the only seat in New York we didn't win. Our candidate last cycle got into all sorts of trouble about abortion on camera. And we think Allison is the right kind of person. But I think ultimately for, for, for someone like Allison, but it's true for a lot of these candidates, I think they are genuinely scared by what they see from the Biden administration. They are concerned. You have a lot of people that are just patriots that say, I, I want to do something for this country. And with a reasonable shot of winning, you know, they, they're motivated to, to get there. Um, and, and I could give you a lot of examples of that, but I think uh, in, in a lot of these places, it's two fundamental things. It's purpose and its viability. Dan, I want to ask you about an issue that I think is probably, I'm sure is, is on your mind a lot. Um, so 2022 was a good year for House Republicans. You took back the House, and you should be credited with that. Um, but it was not probably as big as a lot of people expected it to be for House Republicans. Um, and a lot of people uh, have uh, looked back and said that was probably had a lot to do with the issue of abortion. Um, and there are, I think, a lot of Democrats who still believe that that is a very potent issue for them. And from my perspective, I, I don't know that I've really seen a Republican figure out how to handle that. We've seen a number of different approaches, for example, in the Republican presidential primary. We saw Glenn Youngkin try to go at it a little more directly. Um, it didn't quite work out the way that uh, he had certainly hoped. So one, do you agree that abortion was potentially a factor in uh, or a drag on House Republican performance in the last midterm? Also, how do you see that issue going forward and sort of what advice do you think um, do you give Republicans for the best way to handle that issue? 
Yeah, I, I believe that abortion was one of two issues that ultimately clipped Republicans nationwide, whether it's in the House or elsewhere. But it, it certainly did. Um, and, you know, to, I mean, to did give that you surprise some, you? I mean, uh, did, were you were you I, I guess I just like, like did, did it catch you off guard that, that it was such an impact? It in races where candidates were on camera talking about how they were pro-life, no exceptions, it did not. In I think where it ended up being a little bit surprising was the level of turnout in a place like, say, Michigan, where you had higher Democratic turnout in 2022 than you did in the Democrat wave of 2018. Um, but, but, but. By and large, that's where um, I think it it uh, it changed the calculus a little. So I I think let let me speak to where I see it these days. Last cycle, it had an it had a big effect in some places, and it had a little effect in other places. And you know, I, I mentioned Michigan. You had a number of other states where abortion access is very much a debate. And it was either on the ballot or you were electing a governor that, you know, you could certainly have a, a change in, in the loss. There, it was a much greater motivator of Democrats. Where did it not work? It did not work in any one of the blue states last cycle. And if you look at, you know, where we had our biggest gains, California, New York, Oregon, New Jersey, they all have a similar dynamic here, which is abortion is simply not the same motivator where it's legal um, and, and that it's unlikely to change. And I think that gets to how are we going to deal with it this cycle. So if I were advising a candidate, I believe it t is totally dependent on their state's dynamic. Any member incumbent in a safe blue state has a very simple ability to say, I'm pro-life, but I respect the voters in my state, and this is a state issue, and I'm going to let them uh, handle it. Now, you can be more emotive, and you can be more compassionate, and all those things help in that regard, but you have a very different dynamic in those places where you can just say, this is a state issue, I respect the voters in my state, I don't necessarily agree with the outcome, but this is a settled issue here. I think for the other candidates, you are doing a mix of a few things. One, tone is profoundly important in this, and nuance is important. So if I were a pro-life candidate in Pennsylvania uh, or Arizona, I would make sure that I am compassionate, nuanced in being able to demonstrate that this is a difficult issue that has big effects um, and, and wide-ranging opinions and deeply held beliefs on both sides. Um, and I would show a position that reflects nuance effectively, that, that it, it is not, I think, the candidates that say on camera, I'm pro-life, no exceptions. If you're running in a swing district or in a swing state, that's, that, that, that ends up being a real issue. Now, there are plenty of pro-life candidates who have won. I mean, look at, you look at Joe, Jen Kiggins in Virginia. And she was able to take this on in a compassionate way and be able to show that her other side is, is, is using this for politics and it's sort of nonsense. Um, you look at a, I mean, it's a blue state, but I, th I always look at Lori Chavez Dreamer as having uh, a very good answer in a swing district. And she says, I'm never going to be pro-life enough for some. I'm never going to be pro-choice enough for others. I'm here in the middle, and I'm reasonable. And, and that completely uh, nullified that. So the circumstances matter a lot, but the tone and nuance that you are providing um, matters quite a bit, too. Yeah. I mean, and you've been seeing these issues play out over the last few Congresses uh, with your role. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, obviously, we'll continue the abortion and the immigration conversations. But, you know, does being in a presidential year 
how much does that sort of change your job? Does it make it harder? Um, do these conversations, you know, get, does the oxygen get sucked up, uh, you know, by the, the, federal, the presidential debate, or is it about the same for you? Well, it, it is quite a bit different in a presidential year. Um, but ultimately, the, the basic dynamics remain the same, which is you've got in, in our defensive places, you've got incumbents that have to run outrun their top attacker. And they had to do that in a gubernatorial in an off year. They've got to do it in a presidential year. Um, I, look, I will say we were supposed to, you know, lose in 2016 with Trump. We picked up seats. We were supposed to lose 15 seats in 2020 with Trump. We picked up, we flipped 15 seats. So I think we've identified that, you know, a way to, to win with Trump and he has clear assets in this regard, which is he's, you know, he's, he's great at motivating the base and, and turnout really matters uh, in, in all of these places that there's decent turnout. Now, I think we have a, a different, there's a certain slice of voters that in any one of these suburban districts that we're gonna focus on, that we just know we're not gonna win on the presidential and we have to win in a midterm. I think the other places that it changes us, there's some things tactically. You know, look, a, a lot of our map is, is in these blue states. Well, there's not infrastructure in these blue states. So we have to put in place things like fields. We have to put in place, we, we'll have ballot chase programs in every single district that we're engaging in. You know, in 2020, we ran this ballot chase program. We did it in 30 districts and we did 2.2% better than the districts we didn't do it in. And that's the difference of winning and losing. So we'll do that everywhere, but we'll pay particular attention in the blue states. And then, you know, in, in a swing district, in a swing, sorry, I should say in a swing state, it's a little bit different dynamic where you know the world is just coming in and there's no shortage of turnout efforts one way or the other and your whole focus is, is persuasion and swing. Dad, really good stuff. Um, want to get you out of here. Thank you for sharing these insights. Um, I know the presidential uh, is probably going to get most of the attention, but obviously how the House turns is going to have uh, a huge impact on what Washington looks like next year. Um, really appreciate it. I'll say we will try to get uh, perspective from the other side uh, in an episode in the future. But for now, Dan, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you to everybody for listening to Control. Uh, please uh, don't forget to subscribe, like, and, and check us out every Tuesday that the House is in session. Uh, we will be back with you next time. Dan, thanks again. Thank you. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.